You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Just joining us. Um, welcome. This is, Usually we're making our way through whole books of the Bible, left to right. We're going to be picking up 1 Peter um, later on in August. Today we're closing up a series in the Holy Spirit. Usually use the summer to go through different topics. Uh, and so we just took this one topic, it's a pretty big topic, but an important one, and that is the Holy Spirit. And really, what is your relationship? What is our relationship like uh, with the Holy Spirit? And so the propositional phrase that I've you know, jumped off with is uh, the Holy Spirit is uh, personal presence. It's God's personal presence. So the Holy Spirit, unlike sometimes the way we think about him or treat him or read about him, is not a Luke Skywalker force be with you, chi kind of in personal presence. He's personal. He has a mind, a will, an emotion. He can be grieved. He can be... Um, he can be saddened. He can be all these types of things. We have those relationships. He's a personal presence. Uh, and he, he dances with us, and it's not a trance. The, the Scripture says that the Spirit led Jesus into the desert, didn't transport him. So he nudges us, and he corrects us and informs us. And, and so we have a relationship to keep in step with him. He doesn't take us over like Jesus takes the wheel. Like, we, we follow him, and it is his joy to have this dance, this intimacy, not osmosis, that goes on between us and the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, he's not just an ideal or a warm, fuzzy blanket, but he is power. The Greek word that is explained to use the Holy Spirit is dunamis. It is the same word we get dynamite, and it is power to do what is not possible with him. The thing that was impossible the moment before he got there is now possible just because he's there. And so the Holy Spirit, uh, the Bible loves to show off the Holy Spirit in before and after pictures. He loves to show the vacant world and the Holy Spirit breathing on it, the Ruah of God creating life out of it. He loves to show uh, Mary, occupied by the Holy Spirit, a virgin that can have a baby. He's showing Elijah, who is just uh, a normal guy who has prophecy now because he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Joseph, that has wisdom because of the Holy Spirit, and so on and so forth. Even Jesus himself, before he has the Holy Spirit, can do no ministry. And so the Holy Spirit is not just a, an ideal or a warm fuzzy. He has power to see uh, dead things come to life, and all beauty and wisdom and order all comes out of his handiwork. And so... Um, I uh, brought up the conversation, the icebreaker today about um, games because um, I uh, ha- still have some counseling to be done on my heart, I think, about those impossible video games that you get as a little kid when you're six years old. And clearly, even though the rating said that it was for a six-year-old, if you're not 28 years old, you probably can't beat this game because they would just give you games in the 80s and they had no conscience about it and they didn't test them out beforehand and kids would just have literal tears about how many months and years. I mean, you guys... If you guys were born after the 90s or something like that, I think they have, you know, certain, like, FDA principles here that you can't just put out games that just ruin kids' hearts and, you know what I mean, shame them into, into, into just sadness and rage, really. Uh, Tetris level 10, you guys ever got Tetris level 10? That is not for a human being. That is for a robot. Nobody can be, that's, like, too fast. Level 12, even more, it's like, if you're six years old, it's just too much. There's Ninja Turtles game, if you're running on, on the first Nintendo, NES. And level three, you're swimming around, you can't have oxygen, you hit the jelly wrist, you die, you die, you go all the way back to the beginning. Rage, months of just rage, just haunting memories. And even so, it is a, a, true, a truly proven point by way of even algorithm. They've proven this, that the guy that made NBA Jam, which came out in like 1992, the two little like two-on-two guys with the big heads and they'd spin and he's on fire and all that kind of stuff. The guy that made it didn't like the Bulls, so he made it so that people that played the Bulls during the third quarter couldn't make shots during the third quarter. I mean, he's kind of a psycho. Does this kind of thing in the 90s when everybody is playing Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. It's like, good grief, have you no soul, man. That's cruel. There's a, there's a special place in timeout for people like that, I think. So... Um, so, so, um, so as we, as we are making our way, you know, uh, through the scriptures and, uh, especially as we get to, uh, the, the great moment of, of Jesus on the mountain of Galilee calling, uh, his disciples, defining what a disciple is and what a disciple does with the great commission in Matthew 28, go therefore make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them not just the, what, what they should know and what they should memorize, but teach them to 
with their life, obey everything that I've commanded to do. He has, he has this great commission, this mission that he gives to his disciples. He gives to you and me this calling that we have. And we are finding out, uh, whether by way of experience with the scripture or both, and probably both, that the mission that he's given us is not just difficult and hard, but it's impossible. We're finding out if we have any kind of um, uh, earnest, honest realism within the way that life goes, that uh, the power of darkness and the problem of evil is not just a problem, it is a prison. That the dark forces that have come up against us, the, the powers, the principalities, the diablos, and, and, the, and, the, and the sway of the world, as First John talks about, or the powers that, that Paul talks about, it's not just a problem, it's a prison. And it's around us and inside of us and rules over us, and we are helpless without help. And Jesus came as the Messiah not just to be a friend, but uh, to, to deliver us from that prison of prison of evil. And so therefore, the mission that we're sent on is not just, is not just, not just hard, but it is impossible. It's not just hard, it's impossible. When Jesus talks about discipleship, what he's not talking about is a couple of Sunday school classes in a small group. What he is talking about is the same thing that happened inside of Sarah's belly. It's the same thing that happened to Lazarus in his grave. It's the same thing that happened with the Red Sea that's parting. That's the level of impossibility that he wants us to quantify with when we think about the issue of our mission. You and I have a calling. We are not here for no reason. And if we were just here to be happy, we'd be in heaven because we'd feel a whole lot happier in heaven. So the reason why our feet here is on the earth is to see the kingdom advance into dark places. But mark his words, if not my words, that the advancing of the kingdom is not just difficult and tenuous. It is impossible. It is impossible. Like, like a vacant world without creation that's formless and void, like, an, like a barren womb like Sarah, like a virgin that's going to have a baby like like the Messiah, even before the Holy Spirit is sent out on a mission to change the world in three years, the task in front of us is not just hard. It is impossible. And so this is the way that it comes about one of the times that I think is most prominent, I guess, in, in Scripture, Matthew 23, is this incidence where this rich guy comes to Jesus and Jesus sends him away, sad because he tells the rich guy that uh, he needs to sell all of his stuff and follow him. And so Jesus has this little teachable moment with the disciples, and he, he tells them this. He says, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it will be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 24, And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now notice how Jesus just gave us uh, a, a, a descriptor, a qualifier for how difficult it is to get into the kingdom of heaven. He uses the word hard, but then he gives them an illustration that goes into impossible, right? So he says it's hard, but then what he really means is you're talking about a camel and a needle. And I know that there's all the, you know, there's Bible teachers and stuff or different things. It's, it's a myth to say, it's like, well, he has to go through on his knees and it's actually just, no, it's a needle. Like it's a needle. It's a tiny space. It's an impossibly small space for an impossibly large and stubborn mammal to get through, right? So it's not just hard, it's impossible is what Jesus is saying. And so then they turn to them with the same exact, like he wants us to get to this conclusion in verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they give the response that we should be giving, astonished, then who can be saved? If, if an unsaved person getting saved is to a camel, is to a needle, then what in the world can we hope for, for anybody? How, how is this even possible that somebody can be saved? And he says to him, without blinking an eye, blinking an eye, he says in verse 26, and looking at them, Jesus says to him, with people it's impossible, but... With God, all things are possible. So there's this discouraging, encouraging thing that happens all at once with us is that when we go out to live the calling for the reason our feet is on the earth today, which is to make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey, we're going to run into, if you're doing it with any sense of earnestness or any sense of um, accountability, 
a frustration that comes with trying to move something that's impossible. I mean, this is the experience that he's anticipating. He's letting us know ahead of time the experience we're going to have. But it's at the same time encouraging because it is when we get to that place that we actually come to the end of ourselves and encounter the power of the Holy Spirit for the very first time. It's when we actually understand the impossibility of the mission we've been handed that we understand the power of the one that fulfills the mission in the first place. And so Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 3.5, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul, only servants through whom you come to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but only God has been making it grow. Only God can grow things. Farmers work and they till and they water and they sow, but only God, a farmer, farmer knows you can work as hard as you can and not make something grow. And so um, I had a, um, a, a coffee with uh, a young person, uh, I guess it was a couple months ago. He was um, at a school down the road from us, you'd know it well. And he um, started a Bible study in his spare time uh, at six in the morning at Hardy's. You know those old men's groups at six in the morning, like get up and read Romans or whatever. And these kids loved it. They like jumped into it for whatever reason. It's like four or five of these guys and they were sincere. It wasn't about parents' faith. It wasn't about the school's faith. It was about our faith. They went into it. They're praying. They are um, confessing. They are vulnerable. They are seeking the truth. They're growing to look like Jesus. They're being called up into their destiny. It's just like, it's just a beautiful thing. It's like everything as a pastor I'm listening to, this is just amazing. And not only that, that some of these guys decide to spin off and start their own groups. Like what was added was multiplied. And the DNA of the thing actually spiraled off so that by the beginning of the year, there were six little disciples that were gathered. These high school kids, no youth pastor, no, no, no church van, no concert, no revival meeting. Just the kids at Hardee's multiplies, right? Without a youth group, without a youth pastor, without any money whatsoever, multiplies. And by the end of the year, there's 60 kids all getting discipled, all getting discipled without any chubby bunny games right there in different Hardee's and Starbucks around, around the coffee shop. And I'm just sitting here thinking, what do I get paid for anymore? Like, I don't even know what to say when I hear stories like that. Like, I get up on whiteboards and plan for the fall all this work to try and get the discipleship questions and the sermon questions and the preaching and all that stuff, and I can't seem to get, right? Even next to the fruit of what this guy's talking about within a year, boom. What can I say to that other than the fact that we don't make things grow except God does? What can I say about the fact that, that ministry without the Holy Spirit is not just hard, it's impossible? So, there was a thing when you were a kid, and it was called bring your kid to work day. Did you ever go to a bring your kid to work day? Maybe your dad was a construction guy, and so you were excited because you watched Bob the Builder, you know? And so you had your little hammer and your little boots, you know, and you're six years old, and your little, like, hard hat, and you, like, came with your lunch pail, and you were, like, ready to go, you know? And you were awful. Like, you didn't help dad at all. You were so, you know, disorganized and, like, getting in the way and running off the cliff, and dad had to do more work to bring you to work, right, then, then it was worth, right? But dad wants you to be there because dad wants you to be a part of what he's doing. And it's not so much that dad needs you to be there, but he wants you to be there, right? Isn't that what's going on with take your, take your father to work, or take your kid to work, right? is, is that you show up to the job and you find out that you're not actually doing the work and your father's invitation was more about being with him than getting something done for him. So the invitation to discipleship here is not that the father is upstairs wringing his hands about a mission that can't get done and the church has to go and get super smart and sophisticated about doing it, he understands he sent down his little children to take his children to work day with an impossible mission that he has to fulfill. It has always been with him and like him and for him, and it's only been him that does it. And so we're in the book of Acts today, and just as a little bit of a precursor, like when you read through the book of Acts, you quickly figure out this book is not the acts of the apostles. This book is the acts of the Holy Spirit because these apostles are not getting anything done except what the Holy Spirit already set out. 
Do you remember in Matthew when the 72 or the 12 rather first get sent out in Matthew chapter 10? Do you remember the speech that he gives them? It's not a very encouraging halftime speech. He says, you're going to get sent out as sheep to wolves. This is exactly what he says. You guys remember this. And he sends them out. He says it's going to be super dangerous. But then he, not only that, he tells them this thing. He gives this little like not very reassuring speech. He says, and when you go, I only want you to bring a day's worth of clothing. I don't want you to bring anything else except for what you have in your little backpack and just go on, little Johnny, like go off to work. Just go get it done, right? And, and not only that, he says, I don't want you to pack anything. He says, I don't even want you to prepare anything. Like, I don't want you to even write down your little notes on your little sermon. I just want you to be there and ready because the Holy Spirit's gonna give you the words once you get there. <laughs> What's going on in this mission? Who's really running and funding and employing and empowering this mission? And not only that, he says, I don't even want you to bring swords or weapons or guns because you're sleeping among wolves, but I love to protect little children. And I love to send little people out into big fields to show how big God is, who's running this mission, really. So the mission of God for you and for me is not just in hard, it's impossible. And here's the other thing. It's even one more thing if we read through the book of Acts and, um, and we consider the, the, the mission of God over our life. Um, it's not just that the Holy Spirit comes to make an impossible thing possible. It actually, the Holy Spirit, when, when he says, wait in Jerusalem so power can cloak you from on high, what he's really saying is that the Holy Spirit has come to make an impossible mission accomplished. Right? This is what they're figuring out from Matthew 18 is the preview of what the actual mission is to Acts 1 through 28, is they're showing up to missions that have already been accomplished. These aren't missions that are weighing in the balance if you get it right, pass the test, fail the test. These are missions that have already been accomplished and you just get to show up to work with the hammer in hand and get the credit for what I've already done. Because the, because the filling of the Holy Spirit is also matched and paired with the ascension of Jesus, that he sends his spirit and then at the same exact minute sits next to the Father, the same way he was seated next to the Father in the Sabbath moment in Genesis chapter two and says, not only is my work finished, but your work is finished as well. And I'm seated at the right hand, of the thought, uh, right hand of the Father, and all authority has been given to me. I am ruling this whole entire situation down here. Right? I, I have all the cards in my hand, and this whole game, so to speak, the deck is rigged. And, and I'm seated at the right hand of the Father, and I have all authority, so go and make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to the boy everything I command, and, and when you figure out it's impossible, don't worry, because I'm with you. And I didn't just make this thing possible, I made this thing I made this thing accomplished. This impossible mission has not only been made possible, it's made accomplished in Jesus' name because of the Holy Spirit. And so the important question that we need to consider as we talk about our relationship to the Holy Spirit, it is a dance, not a trance. It is intimacy and not osmosis. And so my question to you on the power factor here is, are you walking today in the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? Because... The power factor, I don't know if it's a philosophy, I don't really use physics, I used to know that stuff, but <laughs> the power factor, the power just means getting stuff done. And we all have things to do, and the most important thing we have to do is follow Jesus. And most of our life, let alone following Jesus, is hard slash impossible. Certainly we know from the scriptures that following Jesus is impossible, so we know that we need a certain kind of power. And so we're all after power. And, and so I just want to ask you that question, like what is your relationship with the personal presence of God, but also in his extension of power, because he has come to make not just the Christian life easy, but to make the Christian life possible. So what's your relationship with that, that um, endowment that he carries, the dunamis power to execute the ascended will of Jesus? What's your relationship with that, to see impossible things made possible? Because, because relationships, for example, you and me, we get together, I feel sad, I'm lonely, you pick me up, you encourage me, you speak life into me. Relationships have power. Okay? But he's... 
And he can use people to, to reflect power and reflect relationship, but ultimately the power that he has for us could visit us in a dungeon with nobody around. So we are talking about a different kind of power. Like relationships have power, but that cannot be colluded with only or, or, or conflated with only the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit doesn't need anyone else around to be powerful. So it not, it's not relationships. Money is a powerful thing, okay? And making things look good and having affluence and, 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 and showing um, uh, human engineering and all these types of things. Human wealth can move stuff, man. It can move stuff. But God's saying that that's, that power, money, money in politics, is impotent compared to my power. It's not moving the thing that I want to move. I'm gonna move things without money and sometimes without relationships for the glory of my name. Ex- exercise. Some of you guys are like, man, I'm tired. I need, to, I need to get up earlier in the morning and work out and you know, journal well and do all this stuff and like, get my... That has a ton of energy, but what he's saying is that that's not going to be enough energy for the mission I've called you to do. If you're gonna do my mission and follow me, you can't rely on energy. You can't rely on exercise. You can't rely on, on, on drinking water. You have to rely on living water. You're gonna need the power of the Holy Spirit to do what I'm calling you to do. And so that's my question is, what is your relationship with the power? Because the mission you're called to is not just hard, it's impossible, and you will need power for it. You will need power from the Holy Spirit. And so wherever you land on this thing, we are going to have time at the very end to just, just to pray. Because whether, it's, whether we feel dead to the Spirit, whether we feel like we've never had an encounter with the Spirit, or whether we feel more dry or asleep to the Spirit, and we haven't sensed him in a long time, and it was an old thing that I put away, and a young thing, you know, I put my child this ways, and that was a youth camp, and all that. It was, I was on a mission trip, and I was on a spiritual high, and all that. You know, but I feel dry. If I feel dead to the Spirit, I feel dry to the Spirit. Or if I'm full of the Spirit, all of us only have one prayer to pray today, and I want to be filled with the Spirit. Wherever you are with the Holy Spirit, whatever your relationship is, Paul tells us that the same way that you need to, you can't get drunk on Friday and expect to get drunk on Sunday, you can't just be filled with the Spirit once. You need to be continually filled with the Spirit because the life that we have in front of us is not just hard, it's impossible, and we need to be filled with that kind of a Spirit, with His power, and that is what this prayer is all about. So I selected um, uh, Acts chapter 4, if you're there, um, and, and partially because I thought that Acts chapter 4 was a wonderful um, uh, prescriptive way of thinking about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, there are a couple of different incidences, like, for example, Acts chapter 2, which could be somewhat prescriptive, but for, for the most part, you would think that Acts chapter 2 maybe would only happen once, that it would be a one-time thing for the inauguration of the church, but Acts chapter 4 seems like more of the normal Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And so uh, I want us to look at this passage, um, not because I think it's a formula, but I do think it's a model, or it's at least an example of what was going on in the prayer life of these apostles at that time that helps us maybe see how we could bring it to 2021 and think about what it means to be actively seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But read with me in Acts chapter 4 in verse 1. It says, On the release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So most recently, they were in the company of the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law and the high priest, Caiaphas, and they stood their ground against these guys. They stared them down and tell them, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they looked them right back in the eye and said, who can I fear, you or Jesus? Who am I supposed to fear at the end of the day, you or God? And if God has sent me on this mission, I can only fear him. And so they had to send them away and they were um, kind of in awe and amazement at the way that the Lord had protected them and provided for them and given them the words and all the things that he had promised to do, that he had given them power. And so they come back, 
In verse 24, it says that when they heard this, they came back to the church and gave testimony for it. The church all raised their voice together in prayer to say this, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage? And the people plot in vain. Verse 26, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord. Psalm chapter two is a, Psalm two is a very famous passage um, that is about the coming inauguration of the kingdom of God coming to this earth and reckoning with the arrogant human rulers that live on the earth. And that is many, much of the reason why I think when Jesus came, he was so unrecognized because many people read this psalm and thought it was going to be Rock'em Sock'em Romans and Jesus was to come back with the sword in his hand and chop everybody's head off and that kind of thing. And Jesus came not to bring sword, but to bring peace. But the picture here that's painted is a common picture of all human authority, both outside and inside the church without the spirit of God. No human authority has never been not arrogant and no human authority has never not conspired against Jesus Christ himself. And so the picture of the human authority, whether it's Pharaoh or Babylon or the rulers that are living in our top of the mountains today, is that there is a foot on the oppressed. It is a foot on the people. They do not bring justice and righteousness. They bring unrighteousness and injustice to the nations and a fist towards God. This is the picture of the human ruler. And you and I are created to be rulers and there's only two different rulers. There is the one that looks like Jesus and the one that looks like Adam. And the one that looks like Adam, no matter how much power or authority they have, they always have their foot on the poor and their fist up to God. But Jesus comes and he brings a counter picture, and that is Jesus always has his arm outstretched to heal the nations and bring justice and righteousness to the nations, because he's the only one that can sit on the throne uh, with righteousness and perpetuity, and his foot is on the snake. So this is the picture of Jesus. The human picture is upside down to Jesus, and Jesus' picture is upside down to the humans. And it's talking about why is it that every, every generation uh, uh, circles back around this same issue of human kingdoms being unjust and oppressive to their people. And so it says in verse 27, indeed, this is true even of Tuesday, or whenever this day this was, of the issue that they just had with the high priest and with Rome. He's like, Pharisees and Pharaohs, they're all the same. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city. They conspired against your holy servant, Jesus, who you anointed, whom you anointed. And they did your power and will. So this is where it gets interesting. Verse 28, that they had all conspired, they had the foot on the people, they had their fist up at God, but ultimately in verse 28, they were doing what your power and your will had already decided beforehand should happen. So that's an interesting comment right there. Verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand that they should do. So I don't know if you guys have ever seen the uh, movie Mall Cop before. Mall Cop is a, is a funny movie and like even the title of it, it's Sam, it's a funny movie. I was at Cinnabon the other day, I'm like, there he is, he's the mall cop. Like, it's a great picture, right? Mall cop, <laughs> doesn't look like a cop for sure. You're questioning whether or not he would pass any kind of endurance test whatsoever. You're not even really sure where they find these guys. They probably just, you know, grab the guy from the arcade and just pull them out here and put a white t-shirt on him, you know, and he goes around. And so the mall cop, I just picture, pick, pick that because the mall cop is a perfect picture of what it would mean if you or me were to have authority with no actual power. So that's what authority means without, without power, is that um, I have jurisdiction over them all, and if I told a little punk kid to stop running, he's probably not going to listen to me, because all I have is a taser, and I don't even know how to use it. You know what I mean? Probably run out of batteries. So I have the authority, and if the cops ask me, hey, what happened? Did you tell them what to do? It's like, yeah, I have the authority, but I have no power. So that's what it means to have authority, no power. You have the badge, but you have no gun. You got no teeth. So authority can be given, can't be taken, and he has authority, but he's got no power. Now, on the other hand, 
you could have um, like, uh, like Osama bin Laden, like a terrorist. So a terrorist is somebody that goes usually across country to go into some other place and usurp power that has no authority. So they take over some plane and take over the building and they kill a bunch of people and stuff and they're trying to use fear and power to go and take authority. But usually when that person gets weak, then the next person takes them and the next person takes them. And so there's lots of countless ideas of what it looks like to have power without authority. But what these apostles are praying and recognizing even on Tuesday as their day unfolds is that uh, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Caiaphas, high priest, in church, out of church, Rome, Caesar, anyways, none of them actually have any authority or power because all authority or power belong to Jesus. And they're not just saying that in a doxology, like they really believe it. They really are seeing it as they go out in boldness to see that what was promised and what was said about the one who really has the throne and the one who really pulls the strings is that Herod and Pontius Pilate actually have no authority and they actually have no power because Jesus has all of it. This is the stakes that they're resting on for their prayer, okay? So then they go on and that place and they say, verse 29, now Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. You see how this prayer is, is, not, is not a Hail Mary prayer, like, oh, maybe just, maybe Aunt Betty's gonna, you know, maybe, Lord, would you just throw, you know, just kind of like a, a wishful thinking. Like, this is not what this prayer is. This prayer is established in some very concrete and important, like, theological and, and really spiritual truths. It's grounded in this position that the ones that are in charge are not really in charge. They're just puppets. Like, a, like, a, like if a big country wants to take over a little country, Remotely, they just install a puppet. A puppet is a ruler who doesn't really have any authority or power. They're just really being puppeted by this puppet. And so somehow, even these unjust rulers, they're saying that Jesus has their strings in his hands. And he's saying, now, Lord, consider the threats that enable your servant to speak your words with great boldness. And then he says, because you have all authority, because you have all authority, because of the position, I, I, I pray that you would stretch out your hand in power. You see that? Because of your authority, it's not because you don't have authority, but because you do, then just with a whisper, I'll ask. I'll say, Holy Spirit, stretch out your hand and heal before signs and wonders. You notice how there, there isn't like a begging God for five hours more to get something to happen as though God doesn't want to do it. Yes, we believe God wants to do it. Yes, we believe he has authority to do so. And yes, we believe he has the power to do so. And all you would need to do is just stretch out your hand like you'd go grab a cookie out of a jar, stretch out your hand and heal. Perform many signs and wonders because it's what you want to do because you can and you will do it. So verse 31, after the, they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the spirit and they spoke uh, of God boldly. So I, I kind of walked it through as we looked at that passage just, just to take an assessment here. What, what's, what's happening in this room of prayer is that these guys who were already filled with the Spirit went out and proclaimed the gospel boldly. It says earlier that Peter was filled with the Spirit when he literally spoke the gospel that got him persecuted. They tried to hold them and try them, but they were against the will of the people, so they were politically tied. And God used all things and all, all measures, big and small, to use what should have been apostles that would have been stuck in prison for life, freed them the next day to go home and preach about it and grow in their boldness. They go home, they preach about the one who's in charge of the one who's really in charge. They talk about it. They pray about it. They pray that God would stretch out their arms, and then they go from that place, and they leave boldly filled with the Spirit again. And so the filling of the Spirit happens in the beginning and in the end. And what they are not doing is bringing a laundry list in front of God and asking God to surround their problems. They're putting Jesus on the throne in the center and asking their problems to submit to the one who has authority. Those are two different prayers, in my opinion. So just a thought on prayer. The ultimate concept here is this, and why it would be relevant to our relationship with the power of the Spirit, is that if we were to think about it soundly, 
and really even think about it probably experientially, is that the power of God's Spirit is nowhere else than living in the authority of Jesus. Isn't that what he commanded from the very beginning even before the disciples knew where the Spirit was? Ask anything in my name and I will do it for you, right? This is the idea, is that the Spirit is not going to run um, a rebellion against Jesus. The Spirit is only going to activate his power that he has sent on this earth to do what Jesus wants in his will. And what Jesus wants is always going to get executed by the Spirit. So the power of the Spirit and the authority of Jesus live in the same place. And so, um, again, I don't know what your experience is with the Holy Spirit. Um, I've seen, we talked about it, just craziness. I've seen power. I've seen um, freedom. I've seen people built up. I've seen people burned. I've just seen all sorts of different things in terms of what people say is the Holy Spirit and so forth. But ultimately, my experience of the Holy Spirit is, um, I think it was Tozer was talking about one time in a book. It's like you're walking down the street with your father, and you always have a proximity to your father, but sometimes the father will wrap you up and just pull you in for a moment, and you will not get more of the Spirit, but surrender more of yourself to the Spirit. What word do you put on that? Is it the baptism of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, the clothing of the Spirit? I don't know. But there are ways to live with the Spirit and resist Him at the same time. There are ways to lie to the Spirit. There are ways to resist the Spirit. There are ways to blaspheme the Spirit. There's all sorts of ways to, to draw near to the Spirit or draw away from the Spirit because it is an intimacy thing, not an osmosis thing. But here's what I can testify to you because I've seen a lot of it and I've been in ministry before. Maybe it would encourage you to some degree, you know, from somebody, from a, from a pastor, for somebody that's in ministry, is that I haven't, and you probably agree, but I haven't seen more or less of the Holy Spirit in an environment or a person based on um, the length or the loudness of prayers, less so the agreement of people towards what Jesus wants in the prayer. Let's say that again. That, that the filling of the Spirit in a person has less to do with the eloquence or the loudness of the speech or the quickness or the fervor or the passion or the screaming or the length of the prayer. Even a whisper in alignment and agreement with Jesus' name has power on it. Can we agree to that? So it's not so much, it's not so much the, the rigor and, and necessarily the kind of like gregarious boldness of the instrument of the person God is using. It's like his agreement with it, which isn't just saying in Jesus' name as a lucky rabbit's foot. It's your kingdom come, your will be done, and whatever you want, I'm here to do what you want because this is about you and not about me. And so, um, you know, one of my closest friends I was thinking about, somebody like, literally baptized in the Holy Spirit. I don't know what you think about that. That's, in City Lights, we, there's hills we die on. There's things that we discuss here, and then there's things, and this is one of them that just you decide on your own. There's three instances within the book of Acts where people are water baptized, and then afterwards they are baptized with the Spirit. And then there's whatever, 17, 20 other ideas where that doesn't happen. So uh, could... It could be a uh, repetitive thing that still happens, or it could be a one-time thing. I don't know. That's for you to decide. And those three incidences um, inaugurated first the Jew church and then the Gentile church. And one of those other instances was when a guy got baptized by John and not by Jesus and so on and so forth. And so there's just a discussion about that and a decision for you to make. But nonetheless, you see that the power of, of the Spirit comes, comes on people for very specific tasks. And, and so anyways, um, but my friend... It was interesting when they had an experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was actually not because of some big altar call where the pastor was just like calling everybody up and there was a big altar and music and stuff going on. They were just singing this song that was called Yes, Lord. You guys ever hear this song? Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, amen. Like, isn't that the prayer? That is the prayer of that kingdom come that will be done. And that ultimately is where I believe the, the, the power of the Spirit lives. The power of the Spirit lives in the person that aligns with his will. 
that the, that the Holy Spirit pours out on all flesh, as Joel chapter 2 says, and the young men and old men prophesy and dream dreams, but he rests on those who want him. And so, and so the, poor in, the, humble, the, the pure in heart see God and the poor in spirit see the kingdom of heaven. And, and, so, and so that place of agreement, that yes, is, is so much more than just saying in Jesus' name. It is aligning with, with what you want, when you want, how you want it. And the power of the Spirit has to go with the authority of Jesus. And the authority of Jesus has to usher in the power of the Spirit. So I made this little chart this morning, and I thought it was helpful for me. Uh, and so uh, take a look at it. It has uh, X and a Y. And the Y chart is, is the authority. Okay, so authority is given, not taken. And authority means a person's right to enforce a will in a particular area. Now, you can be a mall cop and have authority and no power. The other side is the terrorist has the gun, not the badge, and tries to insist on a will and push a will just by way of sheer force. And so you could have power without authority. The apostles are praying both in terms of what they know through revelation and what they're experiencing on their day-to-day life is that Jesus not only has the authority, but he also has the power, not only some authority or some power, he has all the authority and all the power, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so uh, the Holy Spirit can't help but occupy. Like Jesus says, I'll read some of the passages, they're familiar to you, right? John, John chapter 14 I will do whatever you ask for in my name, which is, again, is, is more than just tacking out in Jesus' name at the end of it. It is aligning with his will. I'll do whatever you ask for in my name uh, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me of anything in my name, and I will do it. Matthew 18, 19 says, Again, truly, I tell you that if two on earth agree in that quadrant, if two on earth agree with my will, anything that they ask in that agreement What's bound in heaven is bound on earth, and what is loose in heaven is loose on earth, and vice versa. Anything you ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. And then Second Chronicles 7.14 really, I think, widens the, the spectrum for what it means to be in his name. If my people who are called by my name, this is what they're doing. They're humbling themselves, it's even more so, and they're turning back towards the Holy Spirit rather than the Holy Spirit turning to them. They're praying, they're seeking his face, they're turning from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And of course, this is a famous passage as we think about authority and power. Think about this as the last one I'll read. You guys remember when the Jews, some of these Jews in the book of Acts tries to cast out a spirit and the demons come to him and they say to these Jews, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus just in semantics, but not in posture, not in spiritual realization. Okay, they, they use the name of Jesus like a, like a lucky rabbit's foot. And those uh, who, over those who were demon-possessed, and they said to them, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out, seven sons of Sceva. The Jewish uh, chief priests were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? On what authority? Are you, you, you're trying to run in here? You, don't even, you have a water pistol, first of all, running to hell with a water pistol, and you don't even have a badge. So the consequence becomes... The man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all and gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So the moral of the story is be Christian before you cast out demons, I guess. But uh, the point is, is that we can intellectually ascribe to theological tenets, but when circumstances betray the reality of God's kingdom, we're only going to put our feet on one of, these two, one of these two places. We're either going to surround our prayer and our walk with what our circumstances are saying. And our prayers then will become either power without authority, begging God for doing something he doesn't want to do or needs, can't get accomplished on his own, or 
authority without power, which is throwing up Hail Marys and Lucky Rabbit's foot and just letting Jesus take the wheel, right? But if we believe that he has all authority and all power, the only possible scenario, scenario of that is that I begin, I begin to receive the Holy Spirit rather than resist him. I begin to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. If I believe, if I believe he can and he will, then everybody wants a king like Jesus. If, if he is the one who has come to turn unjust dictators up on their head, to put his foot on the snake and reach his hand out, to stretch out his hand to heal and give justice to the nations. And I know he has all authority and power. There's only one prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Because you can and because you will. And, and in that place between the he can and he will, there's only one thing is I want. If I believe he can and I believe he will, the only prayer I have is I want more of your spirit. The only reason why I'm not asking for more of his spirit is because I don't believe he can or I don't believe he will. And we, we say these things as Christians about what we believe, but ultimately it's our prayer life and our actions and our stepping and our boldness or our begging of God that really responds to what we believe about who's on that throne. And so it comes down to that domain, that sovereign space. In the place where Jesus has all authority and all power, there's only one occupancy within that thing, and the occupancy limit is the Holy Spirit. The only person that can possibly occupy a place like that within the mind of a believer that believes, right, that that Jesus is seated on all authority, has all authority, he has all the badges in his hand, and he has all the guns in his hands, and he's the one who has rule and reign. There's only one possible atmosphere that can be developed inside of that place of belief, and that is the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so if he can, and if he will, then my response becomes, I want. I want more of you, I want all of you, I'm gonna give all of myself to you, because everybody wants a king like Jesus. And everyone was made to see the foot on the snake and the hand extended. And, that's, and, and, that is, and that is what God has come to do. And so I'm just asking, this is the, the question, we're going to transition here into prayer and ministry in a moment. But are you walking with the power of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is not just a warm, fuzzy blanket. He is the power of uh, the gospel new creation that's moving forward. And he occupies places where Jesus rules and reigns, period. There's no place that Jesus rules that the Spirit doesn't indwell. And there's no place that the real power of the Holy Spirit ever lives without the authority and the power of Jesus to come along and establish itself. And so this is what Jesus says to us about whether it's being filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit or hosting the Holy Spirit. He, he pours out on everyone, but he dwells with people who want him. And Jesus says it like this in John chapter seven at the Feast of Booths, I believe. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stands up in a loud voice and he makes this proclamation even before the Holy Spirit comes. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And then he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, living waters and river of living waters will flow from within them. So notice that Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit is not a rain dance, that we do the right thing to try and get the rain. We resist the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't resist us. And the filling of the Holy Spirit is less about begging for rain to come down around me, but receiving the flood that wants to come up inside of me. And he says that anybody, not just smart people or Western people or Eastern people or you know, seminary people, every person that wants to turn to him will receive him just as much as they receive the forgiveness of sin through the baptism of the Son, the baptism of the Spirit. Anyone who believes in him is going to receive it just by faith. Anyone who believes. The Scripture says that the Holy Spirit is going to live up inside of you and flow from within you, and we are going to experience the same filling of the Holy Spirit that Paul and John experienced so many years ago, and so my question is, what is your relationship with the Holy Spirit? He will not resist you, but will you resist him? 
Will you resist him? So what is your relationship like um, with the Holy Spirit? So um, I want to close up our time for this series uh, in a place of prayer and ministry. And this is, um, you know, a command in Scripture, and it's something that's practiced and precedented all throughout the Scripture, which is just the laying on of hands. It's just, just prayer for one another. And so um, I'll, have a, I'll have the band to come up and also prayer people come up as well. Uh, for those that would want to come up for prayer, if you're here by yourself, just want to be alone in prayer and, and be, be prayed for. But I'm just saying, no matter what it is that you think about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, none of that should change the universal desire that we should all want more of the Holy Spirit because everybody wants a king like Jesus. And anyone that's living in that place, like either the I can and the I will is the effect or it's the cause. And I don't really care which one. But it, but the effect and the cause of the filling of the Holy Spirit is that prayer, that kingdom come, that will be done. So this is my point, is that I want to set some time apart just for the next 10 minutes to pray, to pray by yourself, to pray with somebody next to you, or pray with one of the prayer uh, team that'll be on the corners there. And um, I want you to ask the person that you're with, just, hey, what's your relationship like with the Holy Spirit? In this room, maybe there's a person here today that is, uh, considers himself empty or maybe even dead to the Spirit. Like, I don't even know if I've ever experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I know that I've been baptized into him, and I know that I have everything that I need of him, but I don't know if he has all of me. And I feel like I've just been no pulse on this thing. And I don't feel his nudge. I don't feel his whisper. I don't see his power. I don't have his boldness. I don't have the fruits of the Spirit. I don't have the gifts of the Spirit. And I'm not too proud to admit that I need him. And this isn't impossible. It's not just hard. It's impossible. And so if you are dead to the Spirit, then pray. Pray to be filled with the Spirit and have somebody else pray for you. The second thing is maybe you're dry in the Spirit is what I thought. So maybe at youth camp, you know, you had somebody pray for you and you were on fire for the Lord and you were called to missions and you were going for it in your high school and you led one of those small groups at Hardy's or whatever. But you just haven't felt like there's been a dryness. And he says, anyone that's dry can just come to me just by faith. And we could pray the same exact prayer for the first person and the second person. We could just pray, fill me up, Holy Spirit. I want the flood to come up inside of me. And lastly, maybe you are full of the Spirit today and you are just charged with the fruits of the Spirit and love and joy and peace and patience. They're all just blossoming off of your tree. I don't know if anybody's really like that. But if that's you, then pray for more that it would overflow, and that impossible things would happen again. And, and we know what he's done in one, he's going to do in another, and this is what he loves to do. He's not just making hard things easier. He's making impossible things possible, and he's accomplishing them in Jesus' name for little people that would take little steps and not do all the things, but just do the next thing that they're called to do in the conviction and the prompting and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because what else are we here to do except for have our feet on this earth to follow what he says? Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.